questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Now, Exoordinary Mind Facts. Did you know, the longest distance phone call to date, was made on July 20, 1969, when President Nixon spoke with the Apollo 11 astronauts on the moon, 238,000 miles away, with a zero-second delay. In 2017, Mission Control, spoke with the International Space Station astronauts, 249 miles away, and with an 11-second delay. Surprisingly, the first call, is not in the Guinness Book of World Records, and had, absolutely, no delay. And that was, an extraordinary mind fact. And now, on to this week's Veritas interview. I'm Exo. Good night. 50 years ago, the late Neil Armstrong said this. Listen, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Was it a giant leap for mankind? Or was it America's greatest hoax? Remember, science is about repeatability. Who has gone to the moon since NASA? The answer is no one. The term suspension of disbelief or willing suspension of disbelief has been defined as a willingness to suspend one's critical faculties and believe something surreal, sacrifice of realism and logic for the sake of enjoyment. The term was coined in 1817 by the poet and aesthetic philosopher Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who suggested that if a writer could infuse a human interest and a semblance of truth into a fantastic tale, the reader would suspend judgment concerning the implausibility of the narrative. Cognitive estrangement in fiction involves using a person's ignorance to promote suspension of disbelief. We are told the horizons of man are not limited to this physical earth. So, does the moon landing belong squarely at the top of mankind's greatest achievements? Or was it a $150 billion swindle on the American taxpayer? Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at Veritas Radio. Com. And to explore whether the moon landings were a hoax or not, tonight's special guest is Jaron Campanella. Through his research, he's uncovered lies and deceptions that have been taught as truth, and they are far worse than anyone could have imagined. By opening your mind and truly being a human, you can recognize the truth and finally be at peace with it. NASA has lied about space. Science has lied about evolution. And mathematics do not prove reality. He's on a mission to bring down these deceivers. They have a majority of the population worshipping them, even though they have spent billions, even trillions, on faking space 
instead of spending that money on true investigation of the world we live. Instead, they stole it and told us they spent it on pointless rovers, non-existent satellites, and hoax missions. Open your eyes. Stop the lies. His goal is to teach people to use their own heads and to stop believing everything they hear without first finding out for themselves. His website is jeronism.com and you can also find his material on his very popular YouTube channel, Jeronism. We also have links on our website. Hello, Jaron, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Hey, very good. Appreciate you having me on, Mel. I love your show so much and appreciate your work. So I'm honored to be here again, this time to discuss this uh, 50-year anniversary of the greatest achievement of mankind. <laughs> and by the way, the feeling is very mutual. I love your work. By the way, Jaron, we have this explained on our website, but I don't think I've ever asked you, why the pseudonym Jaronism? Well, yeah, it goes back to uh, when I first started really looking into reality and the way things were. And it really started with religion, my issues with, with the religion that I was taught, the religion that I grew up with. I was uh, in an all-boys Catholic high school, a Jesuit-run Catholic high school. And so when I came out of that and just became disillusioned with the whole thing, you know, in that Catholic high school, they would teach us the scientific method and they would teach us all about science. And then at the same time, the next class would be religious studies. And I just found this uh, incompatibility with being able to rectify everything. And so I, I really became disillusioned with school when I you know, got out of there and kind of went on my own life path. And it was about 15 years later after high school that I started to really look into some of these things. You know, I remember a friend of mine telling me in 2005 that uh, the 9-11 attacks weren't as they were uh, told to us. And I told him to shut up and never talk to me about that again. I thought it was ridiculous. And it wasn't until months later that I started to look into those kind of things. And when I did, I just kind of got to the point where I said, you know what, it's, it's more about what I can research, what I can discover, what I'm being told from everybody. I feel like there's lies coming from every direction. So I just said I wanted to create my own religion, and people have taken that the wrong way. Really, it just means it's mine. Yours would be Melism, right? It's, it's, your, it's your quest. It's your search for truth. And that's kind of how it started. And it just started with a little Tumblr blog where I started uh, Jaronism. And I was just pointing out things, pointing out lies in, in religion, pointing out lies in science. And yeah, it just stuck. So that was Jaronism. And if I had to go back and, and I would probably change it because of the connection with religion, the idea. And I've seen many people who have written articles about me and things like that. And they always say, oh, Jaron is professing this new religion, Jaronism. It's like, no, it's not a new religion. Um, it's really just about trusting yourself. You know, I used to say at the end of my videos, open your mind, there's truth inside. And I just really do feel it's about uh, finding your own way, finding your own truth. So I always tell people, Mel, in every video I do, uh, to not trust me. You know, if somebody just watches a video and trusts everything I say, I don't think that's very smart. I think that's what got us here in the first place was simply a blind trust in authority and uh, I want to be about something different. I just want to point things out to people and let them choose their own way. If you don't agree with what I say, you don't have to watch any of my videos. You can block me very easily and just go read a physics book and, you know, go that direction. And a lot of people have said no, that they've found things that I've said very credible. And one of the funniest things that I get from people is uh, they'll say when they first heard about me or first heard about, you know, for instance, uh, you know, Flat Earth, uh, that they just dismissed it and thought it was crazy. And then they said, who's this pompous ass Jaron? And what's this channel Jaronism? But then uh, before they know it, they start watching one video, two videos. They say the next day they're at work and they're thinking about things I said and saying they can't wait to get home to watch something else. And then they watch a few more and then they email me or send me a letter 
and uh, say, wow, you know, I went from hating you one day to uh, really appreciating your work the next day. So that really feels good to hear from people. Um, I know what I say is considered crazy. I know that, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly uh, not mainstream. And so, you know, I'm crazy and that's just me and that's okay for me. Um, but I've been lied to so much, Mel, that at this point, it's super easy for me to believe uh, that the earth is in fact flat. You know, certainly observationally it's flat. And if uh, the only images of earth come from known liars, then I think I'm a fool for trusting them. So I prefer crazy over being a fool. That's kind of how I look at it. And, uh, you know, people don't have to agree with me. And I know a lot of people who may question the moon landings or staunch believers in a globe earth. And that's okay because I think we all start there, right? I mean, that's, you know, there's nobody who can come out of fourth grade and not be a staunch believer and have the globe as part of their belief system. It's forced down your throat from the age of two, the, you know, the time that you can even start to think. You don't get a chance to choose uh, really what's going to be put into your belief system as a young child. That It's kind of forced on you through mainstream propaganda, through NASA education, through every commercial and TV show, and the beginning of every movie starts with the spinning globe. It's all meant to kind of reposition that idea of you living on a sphere. And if people still believe that, that's great. You have to start there. Um, but again, I think the moon landing is so important because once you realize uh, or once you start to look into that and realize that that may have been a fraud, then it just breaks down everything and it starts to tell you that we can be lied to on a massive level and how tightly people hold on to that you know, belief is staggering. You made me think of a couple of things. We have similar backgrounds in that I went to also a, a Catholic school. I was an altar boy, always believing what I was told, even though I, I always rejected that notion. If it right. was not religion, it was science. To me, they were both dogma. And I just wonder, why can't I question? If, I, if I'm not satisfied with an answer and the evidence, your evidence is not satisfying to me, why can't I question it? And I've always had a problem with that. But you mentioned something interesting, the Jesuits. Do you think the Jesuits are behind science? Oh, I think absolutely. Yeah, if you look at the evidence of of where these uh, you know obser observatories came from, and and a lot of the science, you know, uh, George Lemaitre and and the invention of the Big Bang theory. Uh, yeah, I think absolutely a lot of it came from science. Although, uh, I mean, a lot of it came from from the Jesuits and and from the religious orders. But I think that you know back then you know, almost everybody was involved in in the religion, so it's obvious that it would be. Uh, from that faction, but clearly today's people that believe in science think that science has nothing to do with religion and that it's completely separate. And I totally understand where you're saying, where you came from, because I was the same way. I really um, didn't believe in a lot of the religion I was taught at the time, and I was an altar boy, and I also worked in a, a, a church, in a rectory. I worked as a receptionist, and I just started to notice that the priests were not who they were uh, built up to be and who I believed them to be. I, I looked at them when I grew up as these holy men who showed up on Sunday and preached to us and gave us homilies. And and then when I worked in the church and I realized they were everyday people, they would get out of church on Sunday and they would go right into the rectory and they would go right to watching football. And if a homeless man came to the door and asked for you know maybe some food money, they used to give out little gift certificates or gift cards to local fast food restaurants, and I would go get a priest and say, hey, there's a homeless guy at the door who's asking for food. He would say, you know, tell him to get the hell out of here. And um, <laughs> wow. I, I just started to learn that these guys were were not as holy as I thought. And uh, for a long time growing up at a very young age, you know, maybe 9, 10, 11, 12, I remember thinking, oh, maybe I wanted to be a priest. And as I was 14 or 15 and started to work in that uh, church, I just realized 
that they, they were nothing more than men who had adopted that as a belief system. And I would ask them, you know, have you ever talked to God? Have you ever? And they would say, well, no, I get, you know, I feel God's presence. And I said, okay, no, I understand that. I feel God's presence too. I, you know, but have you ever talked to him? And they would just say, no, that they just basically gave up their life here on earth for the reward of life in heaven or everlasting life in heaven. And so I became very disillusioned with it to the point where uh, in my younger 30s, uh, when I just said, you know what, religion, I'm done with it, man. I'm just, I'm over it. I became an atheist and um, started to believe heavily in in science. And I just realized, just like you said, that after about a year of that uh, and arguing in forums, I wanted to go into forums and argue with Christians and, and tell them how you know perfect science was and everything. And I quickly realized that everybody who believed in science was the same as those who believed in religion. It was identical. It was dogmatic. Uh, these people had no idea what they were talking about. And I would go research things like carbon dating. And then I remember in one particular forum where, you know, there was a Christian who showed up who said something about, uh, hey, you know, guys, how do we know the age of the earth? And so somebody came back real quick and said, it's carbon dating, you freaking idiot, you know, something like that. And uh, I just popped in and said, well, actually, it's not carbon dating. Carbon dating only dates back to such. And at this time, I was an atheist. And I said that. And then all of a sudden came this plethora of of science backers who were just loading on top of me and just saying, you're an idiot, you, you, know, you believe in a 6,000-year-old earth. And you know, the funny thing was, is I, was I was on their side, but I was just pointing out that, no, we don't, that's not how they know the age of the earth. It has nothing to do with carbon dating. Carbon dating only can go back you know, 30,000 years. That's certainly how we, not how we know the age of the earth. And I just started to notice that, man, none of these guys even knew what they were talking about. It was simply a position, a belief system that they had taken. So at that point, I just said, man, I'm disillusioned with both. I can see why both are a dogma and why is there nobody who resides in the middle? I really couldn't find people that uh, were smart enough to say, no, I don't have to believe this side and I don't have to believe that side. And that's really where Jaronism came from is that middle point of, no, I'm going to find my own way. I'm going to believe things when the evidence pulls me in that direction. I'm not going to believe things anymore just because I'm told. And that's really where the flat earth started is that's, uh, you know, I erased everything from my belief system and said, let's start from square one and let's prove things one at a time. And unfortunately, the first thing you start with is the sphere earth that we're told we lived on. And, you know, my wife was in the same uh, basket as me. We both decided to start all over. She looked outside one day and said, what do you think? Do you think the earth could possibly be flat? And I said, no, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. You're an idiot. Planes go around it. Uh, you've flown east and gone to Germany. I've flown west and gone to the Philippines. Uh, clearly, the Earth is a sphere, and I kind of dismissed her at that. And it wasn't until you know maybe a month after that that I stumbled upon an Eric Dubay website and saw for the first time that azimuthal equidistant map. And while I may not believe that that's the actual map of the Earth, just looking at it and realizing that planes can go around a level plane uh, and they don't have to go around a sphere was the biggest eye-opening thing to me in a long time and realizing I just told my wife a month earlier that she was stupid for even thinking that. And I said, you know, we're not going to start all over. We're not going to start from the beginning. Some things are just fundamentally true. And removing that from my kind of belief system and just realizing that the, the things that we're brought up with, the ideas that are implanted in our heads as a child, uh, are so fundamentally true to us that we hold on to them so much. You know, I've pointed out to people before that you know, things change, right? You, you, you don't live in the same house you grew up in. Uh, your parents are getting older. Your grandparents have passed away. Uh, you've changed schools. You change teachers. You change friends. You change relationships. Everything changes. The one thing that doesn't change is that fundamental belief that you live on a spinning ball. 
So it really is something that people have a hard time even considering. And I understand that, you know, it was difficult for me. I, you know, told my wife she was crazy. So again, I, I certainly don't expect people to simply believe me. That's not the, the, the best way. I think that's the way that we got here. That's the reason why we all have these deeply held beliefs that are hard for us to shed. And the greatest day for me was when I started my YouTube channel and realized there was others like me finding your show, finding Crow Triple Seven, finding Truth Frequency Radio, and finding these people who do reside where I do now, which is in the middle, which are people who are rational, people who listen to both sides and are able to make up their minds themselves. People who believe in science don't go that method. They, they call themselves skeptics, but they're only skeptical of anything that goes against their mainstream uh, beliefs. And so really, the most comfortable I've ever been in my life, the most um, in touch with reality I've ever been is right now. And it takes a lot of courage to discuss all these subjects. I get attacked all the time by people saying, how dare you discuss the flat earth? And, right. and you have people that praise me. And as I've said before, you have to grow a thick skin, folks. You have to move with the evidence. And I'm not here to to offend anybody. I, I'm here to explore the mysteries of the universe. Even today, I was just thinking, well, I don't know why the name George Washington came to mind. And I realized that he was president in, 19, in 1789. And then I said, wait a second, but what happened from 1776 to 1789? Who was president of the United States? And I just found out today that there were eight presidents before he was. You know, the technicalities of the U.S. Constitution and all the good stuff. But imagine if there's a lot of stuff that we don't discuss in school. We were not told of those eight people that preceded Washington. Imagine what else is not being told to all of us. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, people like John Jay, right, I believe was uh, one of those presidents. And yep. yeah, it certainly is interesting when you find that stuff out. And really, that's why I became disillusioned with the whole education system and realizing that uh, it, what better way to indoctrinate a nation than to create free public education in which you create books and, and you're able to pass those out. And then everybody who goes to those schools will become believers in whatever those books say. And whether or not it's true, that doesn't matter. It's simply the fact that it's authoritative. It's got, it came from, uh, you know, these high level sources and people just adopt it and believe in it. And again, I, I remember being a kid and, and hearing that we lived on a spinning ball and uh, asking questions like, well, how does the water stay on there? And I remember going home and asking my brother and my mom, hey, is it true that we live on a, a spinning ball? And they said, yeah, scientists have proven that. Scientists say that. And real quickly, that just becomes part of your belief system. You're able to, uh, just agree with it. Even though I'm at an age where I can't possibly argue something like gravity, I can't argue something about us living in, in a vast vacuum with our, uh, you know, the, the pressure of our atmosphere uh, not dissipating into the, the vacuum of space. You're not able to conceptualize those things and you're just told them to be true and you, you chalk it up to being fact. And when you get to a certain age, and for me, unfortunately, it was almost when I was 40, but uh, it got to the point where when I started asking these questions and looking for the evidence that should come easily for those things. If you're teaching first grade or something, then I feel like the, the evidence should be bountiful. And really it's not. It's it's made up of a bunch of stories. And when I looked deeper and tried to follow the scientific method, I realized that science has now gotten away from the scientific method. It's all about a dogmatic belief. And that's what's led me to here. And I know the mere fact that you and I are having this discussion, questioning the moon landing tonight, I, I know it offends people. I've lost it friends for, from a very long time a few years ago because one of them, for example, said, my dad worked in, uh, in the Cape Canaveral when that was happening, and I know it's true, blah, blah, blah. 
Imagine the compartmentalization that occurs when you have billions of dollars at your disposal to be able to just hide this from the population. But, you know, why can people look at things objectively and move with the evidence? Have we given our critical thinking abilities to the dogma of science and organized religion? Yeah, I think absolutely. It's uh, like I said, people have adopted those things and the the people who have perpetrated these hoaxes have done a great job at making it part of being an American, for instance. Uh, to question the moon landings is akin to spitting on the flag at this point. And there's so many people, you know, rather than do what you would think they would do, which was keep that very controlled and uh, make sure that there's only a select few people working on this Saturn V, uh, rather than that, they handed out these jobs all across the country. So I think there's a total of something like 400,000 Americans who uh, contributed in some way uh, to that building of the moon la uh, lander and b building of the LEM and, and building this whole process. What that does is it made sure that somebody or everybody in the country knew somebody who knew somebody who worked on the Apollo missions. So they can actually give those answers and they can say exactly what the guy said to you, which is my grandfather worked on the Saturn V. What are you calling him a liar? And, you know, it's just not if, if somebody told us, Mel, that, uh, you know, they they took a Ford Focus and, and drove to Hawaii. Well, from California, you know, you and I would say, well, that's certainly not possible. That's not true. And if we said that and then somebody came back and said, well, how dare you say that? My grandfather worked on the muffler of that Ford Focus. Well, <laughs> great for your grandfather working on the on the muffler. It's still not possible for that car to drive across the ocean to, to from California to Hawaii. So it, it's an argument, um, you know, that, that has no backing. And uh, many people are just, they're, they're so closely guarded by these, these thoughts, these conceptions, these ideas, and, and everybody loves space. And look what they've done, uh, even though all of it comes from CGI and all, all these planets that we're told about and these uh, crazy vast universes and galaxies and uh, crazy miles, you know, trillions of miles out there that we can supposedly see with a little telescope. Uh, people are just, they're in love with it. And when you you know, add to that Star Trek and Star Wars, all of a sudden people, it's, it's a fantasy to me. It's clearly a fantasy. I see no realism anymore in it. And that's why I do the videos I do and talk about the things I do. And I totally agree with you too, that if people, um, I don't want to offend people. That's not the point. The point is when I grew up, I was never given the opportunity to consider other ideas. I was simply told that the things that I was sat in a desk and taught were true. And the books that I read and were, was mandatory for me to read were, were fact. And that's all there was to it. And it was, uh, you know, like I said, 40 years or 35 years until I got to the point where I said, wait, I don't have to believe all these things. So my only hope is that I can tell people the same, that uh, they're free to believe in whatever they want. You know, I would never tell anybody, you have to believe what I say. You have to have the same beliefs as me. I, I think that's a problem even in the truther community where if you or I say something that's different than maybe somebody on Truth Frequency Radio or one of these other podcasts talks about, uh, there almost becomes a war within uh, this truther community. And, and I have a big problem with that because it's okay if uh, somebody doesn't believe exactly what I do. I, I watch videos, I listen to your show, I listen to Crow Triple Seven, I listen to these other podcasts, and I'm able to take from that the things that match my reality, the things that I agree with, the things that strike me as uh, being obvious, the things that have good evidence behind them, and the things that I don't agree with, I can just leave. You know, I don't agree with everything that you say on your show. I don't agree with all your guests. It doesn't mean that I uh, have something out against you or have something out against any of your guests. I think every guest you've ever had on here has provided uh, information to me that has been crucial to my beliefs and to my current standing of, of where I align myself with. And I, I can only say thank you to those people. And so that's my hope for people who watch my channel is that, uh, 
They don't have to take everything I say. They don't have to, to believe it all. And if they don't like any of it and I'm starting to offend them, there is a block button on YouTube that's very easy. And then you never have to watch another one of my videos again. And that's okay. You know, that's okay. I'm, I'm not going to reach everybody. Uh, it's the same thing when we talk about this moon landing. There's some people who believe strongly in it. And, and that's fine. If they want to believe in it, I just hope that they've taken the time to actually look into it. Uh, if they have, then I, what can I do other than say, well, you've reached a different conclusion than I have and just leave it there. I just think it's cognitive dissonance when right. you're brainwashed. Like I used to collect globes. I have a couple in my office here. I mean, even people, when I even retire from the corporate world, they give me a Tiffany, a Tiffany uh, crystal ball because I like them. But I always wonder why do I like these things? Because I was always brainwashed from the day I can remember that little spinning ball in my kindergarten, which I loved so much. So when I was presented with a flat earth, and again, I tell people, I'm in the middle. I'm like Owen Benjamin. I'm a globe skeptic. And right. I still, I will not stop discussing the topic because it fascinates me. The possibilities are endless. But cognitive dissonance, when you tell people something like this, they're going to attack you. And I use the analogy of a buffet. Let's say you and I go to a buffet at a restaurant. Well, you know, I guess what, uh, Jaron, I don't like these ribs that you like. I'm going to talk to the manager so they can remove them. No, you'd pick what you like and you leave what you don't like. But let others enjoy the place that they want. Why can't we do the same thing here? If you want to believe in a globe earth or a square earth or whatever it is, let people continue their journey. But guess what happens now? They don't like it. They start just, you get these trolls that start saying, oh, copyright infringement or I found this to be offensive just by the mere fact that you're discussing the topic and they shut your channel down on YouTube. Has that happened to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And with YouTube now censoring and delisting and demonetizing conspiracy theory videos and uh, they call them dangerous content, uh, you know, even including little moon hoax snippets on videos that I do talking about the moon landing, directing people maybe to Wikipedia or to another site where they can learn the quote unquote real facts. Uh, no, YouTube is definitely. Uh, created a, I don't know, you can call it a monopoly, but, uh, you know, I describe it. And by the way, that was a great analogy about the buffet. I'm going to steal that one. So just, you know, sure. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, taking it. But, uh, you know, the, the way I describe what YouTube's done, which is so, you know, negative is that, uh, you know, if I allowed people to come on my front lawn and I said, hey, I want to start having a free speech platform here. Anybody can come and they can speak on my lawn about whatever they want. Before you know it, I'd have five or 10 people on my lawn speaking their truths and uh, pretty soon I would start to gather an audience. You know, people would start to show up to listen to these uh, people speaking. And then more people would come and start speaking truth. And then more people would come and start watching it. And before you know it, I could even start going out into the audience and selling T-shirts and, and uh, you know, creating advertisements out there and making some money off this. And once my lawn got full, if I started to go through that lawn and choose who I liked what they were saying and who I didn't and removing the people who I didn't like what they were saying, well, all of a sudden what you've done is you've created um, basically a mainstream platform where whatever uh, you want to be said can be said freely and whatever you don't want to be said can't be said anymore. And the hard part is a lot of the people in the audience will still look at that front lawn as a free speech platform and they'll think, hey, this is where I can get truth. And YouTube's become that now. They've, they've gone through and selectively decided. Uh, a lot of people think it's political. Um, you know, they, they've selectively decided what's okay to say and what's not okay to say. And that's not the country that I grew up in. And that's not what free speech means to me. Free speech means to me that you're allowed to say whatever you want. And if I don't like it, I don't have to watch it. And I think that people are capable of policing themselves that way. However, our, our overlords, the elite, 
whatever you want to call them, the, you know, the powers that should not be, they have a different opinion to that. They obviously think uh, free speech means as long as you stay within the confines that we've created, then you're allowed to say what you want. But the moment you step outside that box, uh, they're going to remove that free speech and, and, and place it under something else, either a copyright complaint, like you said. I get a lot of privacy complaints, which are just fraudulent. I mean, there's nothing even in my video that would, uh, you know, create that kind of a, a uh, censorship. But I get it all the time, and I've had my channel stricken. Uh, I know you said the same thing about yours. They give you a strike. They make you take a three months off, or they demonetize your channel. Uh, I had another channel called Jaronism Raw, where I posted my own uh, Jaronism Raw show, which is a Monday night uh, radio show I do on Truth Frequency Radio every Monday. I do that with David Weiss. And uh, they've completely removed the monetization for that channel. And the reason why is they say it's reused content, which makes no sense. It's my own radio show. It's my own voice. It's <laughs> I'm not reusing any content. I'm but don't you doing need somebody to show. accuse you of copyright infringement before they can take action? Yeah, you would think so. But uh, certainly not when it comes to demonetizing a channel. They're just uh, taking them down at will. And of course, there's a lot of channels out there. And it, it would be very easy. You know, There's a lot of channels out there, but there's not very many uh, doing the kind of work that we do. And, and the ones that do um, are put under scrutiny. And if they're going to watch anybody, it's going to be us. And the second that we step out of line, we're going to lose our channels for it. You're going to lose your free speech abilities. And they're just going to say, no, you don't. You didn't lose your free speech. You can go say it somewhere else. But like I said, they've created a monopoly. That's where the audience is. And the people, obviously, that watch my videos uh, enjoy them, or some of them do. And so I don't understand why we just can't police ourselves. And if people don't agree with what I say, uh, then they're free to you know watch something else. It's very simple to police yourselves that way, but uh, not in the world we live in today. Uh, it needs to come from above, and this is how they make sure that people only believe what they want them to believe. It's just like the mainstream media. Uh, it, it's exactly the same. I mean, the things that you hear coming out of the news are exactly what they want you to believe, and it's so easy for them now, Mel. They can simply say anything, and the whole country will believe it tomorrow. Simple. And it's okay for them to leave beheading videos. And I see so many videos that I, I don't even want to watch filled with profanity. I've never used a profane word in my 10 years doing this, but yet they find my content to be threatening. And it was a few months ago that Google wrote me a letter saying, we're going to completely remove you from our search engine because you are hosting social engineering content, the hypocrisy. Wow. Oh my goodness, that is uh, the actual definition of <laughs> hypocrisy, indeed. Yeah, dangerous content. I mean, those are the kind of words that I hear. Uh, you know, borderline content. Uh, I'm not sure what's you know borderline about saying that we didn't go to the moon. If people want to still believe it, uh, that's fine by me, and I certainly point that out in every one of my videos. So I'm surprised my channel has lasted this long. Uh, you know, I've got 140,000 subscribers right now. I try to post a you know a video or two a week, and uh, again. If I lose it at any time soon, I, I wouldn't be surprised because that's kind of the way it's going. And, you know, people like Owen Benjamin had a great channel going recently and he was demonetized. Um, so there's just a lot of, of that going on in this world. And, and the mainstream, it's very easy for them to promote whatever they want people to believe and to delist anything that they want people not to believe. And as a result, you're going to have a country that is consisting mainly of people who believe exactly what you tell them to believe. And that's the world that we live in today. And speaking of NASA, when it comes to the people who tell us, oh, but my grandfather and my father worked there, can they think for a moment that, that NASA is a branch of the Department of Defense and they think militarily? In other words, if you have thousands of people with their own fraction of the mission, do you think the guy next to you is going to know what the guy across in the other cubicle is doing? Probably not. No, never. No, I think that com compartmentalization is the big thing 
uh, that NASA does so well. You know, r- recently, uh, about two Saturdays ago, we had a, a meetup in Sacramento. I went to the uh, McKinley Park there. There was about 80 people there. One of the people who came there was a, a NASA employee, and he wanted to show me his name badge to show me that he worked for NASA. And at first I thought, okay, this guy's going to want to get into a little bit of a debate or an argument. And he said, no, I'm totally on the flat earth side. I just came to tell you about all the ways that NASA compartmentalizes everything that we do. And then he pointed out, did you know that none of the satellites that are supposedly in orbit uh, are controlled by actual NASA employees. They're all contracted out to these third parties. And you know, all the things he told me, he told me so much great information where it just reconfirmed exactly what I thought. That, yeah, well, tell us a, more. Of course, you're not going to give his name out, I guess, but tell us no. more. Yeah, no, he just had a lot to say about all the ways that they compartmentalize. And he said, you know, for him, he works on computer systems that uh, work with uh, flight plans and flight data. And he's surprised at the amount of people there who work and uh, basically do a lot of work for airline, airlines and air flight. Um, but he said, as far as the space part of it, uh, that stuff is all contracted out to somebody else. And so he just believed you know, a lot of what we were saying and just said, no, it's clearly possible. I had another ex-NASA employee on my channel, um, uh, uh, Holland. I can't remember her first name. Uh, Cindy, Cindy Holland. And you can find that on my YouTube channel, Jaronism, if people want to check that out. It was an interview with her. And she's also a flat earther. So it certainly isn't something that people think, oh, only somebody's stupid. I mean, these people work for NASA in, in one facet or another. And uh, they see the things that we're saying and can can totally agree with it. There's another guy that was a, uh, an employee. He's just a security guard out at NASA, but basically says, you know, on the days or two before any kind of launches, they completely close it off to any uh, people coming anywhere close, which would make sense, I guess, for danger possibilities as well. But he said, you know, he's not even allowed to bring his camera, um, phone. I know another employee that works for Northrop Grumman, and uh, they're a big NASA contractor. And, you know, these could be just for defense reasons, but none of these people are allowed to even own a cell phone that has a camera in it. Or they can own one, I guess, if they or have that at home. But as far as bringing it to work, uh, you're checked every day. Your pockets are emptied. You can have nothing that has any kind of uh, camera on it. And again, you have your own specific jobs and they make sure that people who work for NASA stay happy. So they have lots of parties and festivities and free food. And and this way, these people are very happy in their jobs and they're content, but they don't really look at the whole picture. And again, it's very easy for me to imagine that it would be quite easy to pull off some some hoaxes. And really, when we start looking into NASA, it seems to me that they're basically a money-sucking colossus that is composed of lies and hoaxes and, and terrible misinformation. And the taxpayer, the U.S. taxpayer, who is the one funding the very organization, virtually receives no benefit from NASA's existence and all their alleged scientific contributions um, that have come from these explorations and experiments in space. Uh, and, and there's no sources that we can go to to verify the things that we're hearing. It's simply what NASA says, and somebody else might say, oh, well, there's these other space agencies as well. But then you realize that they all work together and You'll still have more people that'll come and say, well, what about SpaceX? SpaceX is a is a private space company, and how would they be able – well, you know, on my channel, you can just look up Elon Musk, uh, SpaceX, not a private company. Uh, he's sitting at a, a Senate hearing, and he voices the fact that um, he's already given over 300 government a- officials full backroom access to all his computer systems. So at that point, once you've done that – and he admits that fully – uh, once you've given 300 government officials full backroom access to your computer systems, well, I don't no longer consider you a private space company. You're now directly involved with the government. And then you start looking into how Elon Musk makes his money as far as SpaceX goes and even with Tesla. 
that, uh, you know, he's making cars that cost him 50000 to make and he's able to sell them for 40000 Well, why? Because he's receiving constant subsidies. Uh, so this is not a good business. And the fact that they're valued higher than GM is, is such a joke. These guys are not selling nearly the amount of cars, you know, 5% or something of the of cars of GM, and yet they're valued more. It's, it's just all propagating these ideas and these, these space lies to me. And uh, same thing with SpaceX, but clearly they're not an independent company. They're not operating on their own. They're not able to go out and uh, verify the information that NASA is giving it because they work directly with them. I think the same thing happens with Virgin Space. It's the same thing that happens with uh, uh, Jeff Bezos' space company. But remember right. the spectacular SpaceX launch since Tesla Roadster into orbit. <laughs> Did you see the glitches in that video? Oh, yeah, there's a lot. And I've, I've done a video there, and it's one of my more important videos, and it doesn't have as many views as I would like, but I was able to show, and if you check out the video, you know, proof that SpaceX was able to change its live stream. Uh, SpaceX did something that no other YouTube channel uh, that I've ever seen is able to do, and that's they changed streamed the a live stream, and they changed part of the video. They uh, at the During the actual live stream, they had the scene where the thing kind of blasts open, yeah. Uh, it was in the wrong spot. They basically put it at the end of the video and didn't include it where it should have been. Well, what they were able to do somehow, which is impossible for any other channel to do, is after that had streamed to go back and edit the video and move that scene to where it was where they wanted it to be um, and then republish the video. And it's not like it doesn't say it anywhere. I could understand if you did that. And then it says this was streamed live on this date, was edited, edited. and re-uploaded on this date. Right. It says nothing like that. There's no indication at all that it was even done. But even worse than that is it's impossible to do. You would have to have some sort of inside connection with YouTube. There's no way that you or I could do a live stream on YouTube and then after the fact be able to edit that video and then keep it published with the same amount of views. Nothing changed. And, um, the, you know, they do that a lot. They'll go through and cut out the, the ending and beginning. And even that shouldn't be allowed according to YouTube's rules. YouTube rules say once a video has over 100,000 views, you're not able to even trim the video if it was a live stream. But but SpaceX does that every time. They they have like a little 15-minute uh, pre-thing going before they start their little live stream, and that's always able to be chopped off, even though their video, after it's done, has multiple millions of views, uh, going completely against the YouTube rules. So it, it just goes to show you that these guys have uh, interconnections. That they're they're part of the club. They're part of the club. It's allowed for them and, and not allowed for everybody else. And I really think... It's scary when you get into that kind of idea. One of the things I used to do, Mel, a lot is I would sit and watch uh, space, um, sorry, NASA spacewalks really intently, really closely, especially the live ones, because I would want to try and find mistakes and errors. And I found plenty of them. Those are all over my channel. Uh, but I stopped doing that after I saw what SpaceX did because I realized, well, wow, these guys can just load things, call them live. And I would go and find old videos, you know, maybe two, three, four years old. Uh, that said stream live and it's okay. I watched this, but then I realized, well, wait a second. If after that was stream live, if they were able to edit anything and go back and change it, then of course I'm not going to find anything. Um, so once you realize that, then you start to realize that they're all in the same club. And, uh, yeah, it was really indicative to me of what we're up against here. And it's, it's not easy. It's the hardest thing uh, that there is to try and prove to people that something that they love so much, which is NASA, you know, it's a, it's an American baby, man. People, are really closely attached to that. And to try and tell them that it may not be real or it may not be everything it's uh, touted to be uh, scares people. Uh, you know, I always talk about this $56 million that NASA gets a day. Um, and that's not a year. I said that correctly. It's $56 million a day. And, you know, Mel, if I gave you $56 million one time, 
and said, hey, Mel, I want to see you make some changes in the world and do some good things. Think of what would be expected of you after a year or two years or three years. And that's just giving you $56 million one time. And they get that every single day. And I don't see the return for the money. I, I just don't see it. And, and I think that uh, we could be spending that money on things down at Earth. And once this Earth is perfect and it's heaven on Earth, well, then if you want to go out and you want to explore the stars or so-called space, um, then that's fine. But until then, uh, they've done nothing but uh, create stories and create a fantasy for people. And I think that that's been their job since 1958. Yeah, look at our oceans. What is the percentage of exploration that we've had in our oceans? There's so much unexplored that we have, and now we have microplastics everywhere. I would stop every launch of any rocket out there until we can fix this problem. Because what's going to happen in the future, we, like Edgar Mitchell, I mean, the alleged uh, person, sixth person to walk on the moon, told me, at least he said this right, we need to find a place to go to because we treat this earth as if we had another one to go to. And at least I agree with those words. Yeah, so do I. And there's so many people that want to go to Mars and, and they're willing to, you know, I'll give up my life to go to Mars and to, and what is there in Mars? There's, you know, there's no air to breathe. There's no, even if you believe in Mars, there's, it's not a place for humans. So why wouldn't we take care of this land that we were given, this beautiful earth? I mean, there's so much unexplored on this earth, let alone um, everywhere else in, in this universe, as, as they want to tell us. But to me, I totally agree. I think that we should take care of this place first. And like you said, with all the, the plastics and everything in the ocean, and then you realize that NASA is not just launching things into space, but when they launch it up there, uh, all the broken pieces just fall into the ocean, and they just leave them there. They call it a, a space graveyard, uh, where all these satellites supposedly come down and crash, and they're just leaving this stuff. And what I think is a lot of those uh, rockets that we see go up are simply going out and landing in the ocean, and it's all a big show. And you, you're able to go out to Florida if you want, and you can bring your camera, and you can stand 11 miles away from that launch site. You can watch them launch something. It'll be very loud. It'll be very pretty. Uh, you can film that, and then you can either believe that after that thing gets out of your view that it's gone to space, or you can actually watch it on your you know TV screen and see that they switch the video into what becomes what looks like a CGI. Um, you know, it looks like something out of 2001 Space Odyssey. How come we never hear of these thousands of satellites of a private company or even NASA sending probes out there to fix these satellites? Do they not break at all? I know. Do they never crash into each other? They seem right. to never have any problems. Everything works so perfectly for them. And uh, it's just ridiculous when you get into these prices that, uh, you know, I, I think I looked up one time and a direct TV satellite launch costs some $150 million. And uh, yeah, when you start to to think of all these things and then you see, you know, what I see is that NASA launches. Uh, so I think what they admit is 50 uh, balloons a day, 50 helium balloons a day. And you, know, you can check out my channel for that as well. There's tons of evidence or, or scenes of them launching what look like satellites. They hang from big balloons and NASA has admitted that they can put those up there and that they've uh, been able to control their, uh, make sure that they don't descend or, or ascend. They can kind of refill a little canister of um, uh, of helium if it needs to to go up a little bit or hydrogen. And uh, they can release a little bit if they need it to come down a little bit. And it's able to stay up there for you know up to a year. Uh, or even longer. So some of these ideas, and they're so cheap, these little balloon launches with these contraptions at the bottom, and then you start to see where maybe these direct TV satellite um, images may be coming from and, and where we might be getting some of these signals. So yeah, it really opens up a big can of worms, and that's all I hope people check into and look into because we've just all been told so strongly that all these things are facts and that our, our phones are communicating with the uh, you know, these geosynchronous satellites some 22,000 miles away, and people just uh, believe it. 
And um, I see why, because I was somebody who was right there with them. I, I believed everything that I was told uh, up to a few years ago. And since then, I've just been trying to explore. And, and um, you know, I've done a lot of videos on quotes from from people that there's, you know, from Max Born to Einstein to Hawking to Newton and Poincare and Michelson Morley and, you know, physics professors and Fred Hoyle and different PhDs, Mac Tegsmark and Lawrence Krauss and Lorentz and Hubble, so many more people that have given us quotes that tell us uh, about the reality we live in and just trying to get people to, to see exactly what I see. And, you know, things like Einstein saying that there's no, sorry about that. One second, it's all right. That. Okay, making sure my dog's okay. Um, anyway, um, yeah. So, I mean, really when you, when you get these, these guys that uh, tell us exactly about the world that we live in, um, I'm just hoping to kind of get that information out to others. You were talking about the vacuum of space a few minutes ago, and I remember back in February of this year, Mike Wall from Space.com wrote an article titled, Surprise, Earth's atmosphere extends far beyond the orbit of the moon, reaching up to 390,000 miles or 630,000 kilometers. We're told the distance from Earth to the moon is an average of 239,000. So, Jaron, if the moon is within Earth's atmosphere, did the Apollo mission astronauts detect any oxygen levels there since we were told the moon has no atmosphere? <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. They can just change their story so quickly. It's the same thing when I read an article that India landed some craft on the moon and, and discovered that there was water there. And it's just funny because you know, what about these six missions that landed on the moon and the seven missions that were sent in that direction? And we never heard anything about that, that there was never any water there. In fact, we've always been told that there could be no water that would exist on the moon. Um, and yeah, so it's certainly interesting when you uh, get some of these stories that you hear. And it's like in a recent Newsweek article that uh, I read, the director general of Roscosmos, uh, you know, the head of the, the Russian space agency, was quoted as saying that they have a new objective to fly and verify whether or not they've been there or not, talking about the U.S. space agency. Um, then he was asked by a reporter, well, do you believe that NASA has landed on the moon in 1969? And he didn't answer. He simply shrugged his shoulders. So, I mean, there's just so many interesting things coming out. Um, another one that came out recently was that Russia admitted that they were finding uh, plankton on the outside windows of the ISS. And uh, that's hilarious. And then when I you know, read further in that article, they say, oh, the way that happened is that these plankton come out of the ocean and they float up into space and get stuck on the ISS windows. <laughs> so it's, it's terribly interesting and, and sometimes laughable. Uh, at these stories that come out and people just keep buying them and keep believing them. And yeah, the latest one now is that the atmosphere actually stretches past the moon and uh, how we got there on one tank of gas, I'll, I'll never know, especially if traveling through an atmosphere. Also, one thing that bothered me, and this is even from when I was in school, because I remember the big blue marble, the big blue mm -hmm. marble. I was thinking for some reason that that was taken by Neil Armstrong. Because if, if you and I go to the moon, what is the very first thing that we want to look at? Mother right. Earth, right? I would want to be taking pictures. I mean, we've had Technicolor since, what, the 1950s? Mm -hmm. Why didn't we have Technicolor there? All right, you don't want to be broadcasting what's happening on the moon right now, but at least show us later. Not even that. But the big blue barbel that came up, they came out when December 7th, 1972? Right. Three years later, what did, why did it take so long for them to finally give us a picture of the Earth? Is it because they didn't have composites until then? Yeah, I, and you, we would have no idea, but I totally agree. There's so many things, and you know, the fact that they didn't take a telescope to the moon 
which is crazy. You know, a lot of the times we see these sparkling stars, it's hard for us to see these things with a telescope because we're looking through an atmosphere. Right. Why wouldn't the first thing you would do is take a telescope to the moon? And again, just to uh, piggyback off what you said about seeing the Earth, yeah, if you and I went to the moon and and landed there, the very first thing that we would do is step out, turn around and see the Earth and go, Mel, look at the Earth. How amazing. Look at the Earth. Take a picture of the Earth. Look where we came from. Look how much, how far we've come. And if you look at the transcripts, Neil and Buzz on their first trip to the moon never once said the word, look at the Earth. Look at Earth. Take a picture of Earth. Photograph the Earth. The entire time they stood on the moon, from the time they got out to the time they got in. And that's ridiculous to believe that that would even be the case. That would be the most amazing thing you'd ever seen. Uh, but not to these guys. And, you know, my opinion is because they were on the earth and it would be very easy to forget to look up in the sky and point that out if you were actually standing on the earth. And they were on the side that was facing the earth. Uh-huh. So yep, it makes absolutely. no sense to me. It makes no sense to me that it took until 1972 to see that. But another thing that people don't look at is that it looks tiny. If you look at the pictures that, that came supposedly from, from moon, the moon, earth looks tiny. And it was the epic, epic image a few years ago. Remember when you had right. these, it could not be more CGI, uh, the moon floating in front of the uh, earth. And you can right. see that is truly the size of the earth in comparison to the moon. Now, if you and I were on, on the moon, that's the panorama we would be seeing would be the entire earth blocking our view. Yeah, it's amazing. And even as that moon goes floating by, it, you know, they call it the dark side of the moon, of course. So they kind of shaded it in dark, but right. they didn't realize that we're looking from the perspective of the sun. Right. So we should be seeing the moon as bright as could be. It should be lighting up the whole sky uh, and that whole picture. But no, they say, oh, no, it's because the bright earth behind it. And it doesn't make any sense. Why would the earth be so much brighter behind a dark moon unless you're just trying to show people this is the dark side of the moon? Well, there is no dark side of the moon if you're on the sun side of it. So, it, yeah, it's just stories like these and pictures like these that they love to paint in people's minds, and it works so well. All you have to do is create that CGI, uh, send it across Twitter, and, and look at all the comments. And people just, oh, I love our beautiful Earth. I love the, you know, look at the moon. Look how fantastic. You, look what NASA's doing. Yeah, thank you, NASA, so much for, for getting us this image and uh, paying no attention that it's $56 million a day. And, you know, getting into the moon landings, and one thing that people um, might not realize, but like you just said, even if you do believe that we landed on the moon, then you have to accept the fact that the last time a human being took a photograph of the Earth was in 1972. Uh, and again, if you're me and you don't believe that we went to the moon, then you realize that nobody in the history of the Earth has ever taken a picture of the Earth um, like we've seen it. It's just never happened, period. So then you start to question all the images that you get and you realize that all those things, oh, one thing I forgot to mention earlier um, when talking about the NASA employee, is that all the data that comes back from these so-called satellites, all these imaging equipment, uh, is processed by computers. And again, these computers are all created and manufactured by men, by people, uh, who can program them to output whatever they want. So nothing that we see is even in the visual spectrum when you're talking about these other planets or distant galaxies. And then they come through, they're processed by a computer that, again, was programmed by human beings, and then they output some picture that they're able to pass off to people and say, hey, look at these pictures we took in space. But again, uh, for me, there's no human being that has ever been able to stand back and take a picture, a uh, photograph of the sphere Earth. So at this point, that's when you start after asking yourself, well, why would they ever lie about the moon landings? Why would they lie uh, so deeply about these? And again, I think it has a lot to do with um, that blue marble image. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen the Universal logo uh, that starts at the beginning of movies, but the ones that were done before 
the moon landings is almost identical to the blue marble, the image of Africa kind of off to the side there. Uh, that was the universal logo even before they went to the moon. And I think they just needed to solidify in people's minds that, hey, this is actually real. Uh, it's not just a cartoon. And uh, it really goes to show you that how easy it is to convince people uh, of something that they want to be true. And, you know, then as a kid, once they teach people in school that we went to the moon land, that we went to the moon and we landed there and men have stood on that sphere, uh, it just becomes part of your belief system. And you, you might go outside and you're able to look up there. And if you immediately think of people who have been there and people have stood sideways on it, and then you have this idea that people can live on a sphere and you can live on different sides of the sphere. And it's all the same because gravity pulls you to the middle and it just becomes part of your belief system. And that's what I believe happened here. So people are, they're just uh, addicted to that idea. And uh, a lot of it to me is fantasy. And I did a recent video called uh, Narholes where I kind of made fun of these black hole image that just came out recently. And uh, I said, really, that's nothing more than considering it as being a a Narhole, which is from Narnia. These are just (laughs) men telling you that they took, it's no different than them saying, oh, well, we have these telescopes that peered through the wardrobe and we're able to see these Narholes that exist in Narnia. And people believe it and they love it and they are able to pass that off on Twitter and uh, get a celebration from people saying, well, how great the science is that has allowed us to see uh, some ridiculous amount of distance into space. It's just nonsense to me. I loved all the memes, even our our own Vig Giza, our a graphic artist that sends us comic strips every week. He had a, a, a bagel out of focus, you know, and that's, you know, people believe. Uh, it's, it's just incredible. But uh, yeah. when you... You would think that people would have more discernment when you had the 1972 Big Blue Marble and then a few decades later you have another picture and then another picture. You would think that at least I get it. Maybe the colors were different because the cameras are newer, but the size of the continents changed. And you would think people would question, wait a second, why is the United States much bigger now than Africa and then Australia here and it's not in the same place? That, why wouldn't people question that? I, I don't know. And again, I think it has a lot to do with just that uh, belief. It's it's so strongly embedded in your very being. And so you just don't ask questions. It's just, oh, look at this new image and look at this image. And yeah, when we bring it up, I mean, anybody who wants to, the people get, see what they want to see, you know? And so even though we bring those up, people will just come up with excuses and say, oh, it was taken from a different angle. Oh, it's a different focal length. Uh, oh, it was zoomed in more. Oh, it was zoomed out more whatever they can to still hold on to that fundamental belief. Because the second that they question it, I think they realize what happens is that you literally fall down that rabbit hole. And once you get just an inch into that rabbit hole, uh, you start looking into something else. And when you do that, you you lose another connection with what you were taught and told. And then you go a little bit deeper and then you, another thing peels away. And before you know it, uh, you fall the deepest you possibly can into that hole and get to the point where I'm at <laughs> you know, and think that the earth is flat. And And that's what they're so afraid of. And this is why... Uh, they have to demonize conspiracy theories and they have to demonize that word. Um, even though they're not conspiracy theories when they're backed by evidence, they become conspiracy facts. You know, conspiracy theory would mean that somebody's just making something up with no evidence and, and no supporting uh, facts. But uh, everything that we talk about has supporting evidence and we're trying to show people those exact things. But no, you'll be demonized. And the reason why is the mainstream doesn't want you to dare put that first foot into that rabbit hole because you'll never come back out. Well, it's just like that saying, your eyes don't see what your mind doesn't know. And if all these fantasies that NASA gives to us all the time, oh, we found a planet 40,000 light years away, and it's uh, in the Goldilocks of this uh, whatever, and it can store life, people all of a sudden become very hopeful. 
And I'm thinking 40,000 light years away. Really, you're hopeful. How consequential is that the people on Earth? Yeah, extremely. Um, I think going back to what you said about the blue marble photo as well, that uh, in an article published, I think 2015, I forgot the exact date, but they're talking about this new picture, like you said, the epic picture, and they flat out admit that that was the first picture of Earth taken since 1972. So even though there's a lot of other images that were shown, all of those were admitted composites, and they were taken by uh, satellites, or you can call them uh, balloons, or you can call them high-altitude planes. But basically, if you just fly above the Earth and take images and then stitch them all together, and a lot of people always bring up Robert Simmon, who's the NASA visual artist who admits that the Earth photos that we've seen and even the very picture of the Earth, right, uh, he says that they're Photoshopped because they have to be. And he goes on to admit that he's he's done uh, a lot of that work himself. And he says he has to change the color of the oceans and he has to add clouds and he's got to remove clouds. And we've all seen that and pointed it out that these clouds are Photoshopped. They're used the stamp tool uh, where basically you take one piece of a cloud from somewhere and you're just able to stamp it other places on the earth. And yeah, I, I thought at the beginning of this kind of line of research when I saw how terrible the ISS live stream was uh, of the earth and how terrible some of these images were, I just thought people had never seen it. And I remember sitting there with my wife and saying, I just can't wait to show this stuff because the entire world will change when people realize this is all fake. What I didn't expect is people to just go look at that stuff and then make up any excuse possible uh, to continue believing it. They don't want their beliefs shattered. That That's just, just imagine if one day somebody from the government would come out and say, listen, we've been wrong for the last couple of hundred years or 400 years. If the ancient ones were right. And there's more land outside of our realm. We just haven't been able to get out there because there's a dome. Imagine if they came out and, and said that. The mouse inside of a cage all of a sudden realizes there's a door. There's a door. We just need to find out where that door is. And there's life outside of this cage. Everybody would go. Everybody would start looking for it. And no, they'd rather tell you that everything's already been explored. It's just like in the Truman Show where they you know, pull down the map and say, everything's already been explored and zip it right back up. Um, when it's just crazy. I mean, there's no human being that has ever even traversed uh, one half of one half of one percent of, of the land that, that we are given. And uh, yet they want to pretend like it's all been discovered. It's all been explored. And now let's worry about everything out there in the sky. And you know, I watched your uh, your recent interview about water, and, and that was incredible. But it's the same kind of thing, that once you realize that fluoride is a poison, uh, that they've been systematically placing it in the water, you know, mandatory water fluoridation, uh, at this point, you can't expect them to ever be able to come out and tell you the truth. So when you go looking, you have to expect that they're going to be giving you any evidence they can to say, well, no, this does help your teeth, and it's a 15% increase in, or reduction in tooth decay. They're going to try whatever they can because the last thing that they can possibly do is admit that they've been poisoning humanity uh, since 1940. It's just they can't do it. And so people need to learn to, to expect that, that they think that the media is going to be able to, these independent journalists are going to go out or these journalists are going to be able to go out and prove this stuff. But the problem is, is that our government's never going to let that kind of information out. We need to research and, and find those things out ourselves. And then that's what my channel's for, is trying to uh, give some of this information to people so that they can make informed decisions. Speaking of fluoride, folks, did you know that that is a, an important ingredient that anesthesiologists use when they're ready to start an operation to kind of make you go fall asleep? Fluoride is an integral part of that process. So imagine that. But I have another he thing here that I want to discuss before we take a break. The sure. late astronaut Alan Bean, 
the fourth, want to quote, the fourth person to walk on the moon, when interviewed by Bart Subrell and confronted about the Van Allen belt, said that we hadn't discovered it yet, which is false. <laughs> the Van Allen belt was discovered in 1958. Now, plenty of time before his alleged moonwalking in November 1969. But even if we hadn't discovered it, Jaren, between the inner and outer belts, it's about 41,000 miles wide. How did they all survive? Well, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't go through. I think that's the only possible outcome that, that you can get from that. It's just ridiculous. The, uh, and then you think about the film, right, going through that kind of radiation. Right. I mean, you're not even able to take your 35-millimeter film uh, through an airport security <laughs> checkpoint right. without it being damaged. Uh, yet these guys flew for hours um, through this so-called Van Allen belts. And you're absolutely right. Bart Cybrell has done some great work as far as that. I think one of the most telling things to me uh, and you'll have to tell me, Mel, but um, even though I've, I've had a religious background and anything, I have no problem swearing on the Bible if somebody told me, Jaron, swear on the Bible that blank is true. If, if I knew it was true, you know, swear on the Bible that you live at this address. Okay, I'll swear on the Bible. I have no problem swearing on the Bible to anything that I know is true. However, when Bart Cybrell approached Neil Armstrong and had to ask him to swear on the Bible that he went to the moon, Neil wouldn't sign it or wouldn't swear on the Bible. And then he was even offered $5,000. Uh, to a charity of his choice, if he would simply swear on the Bible that he walked on the moon and Neil Armstrong wouldn't swear on the Bible. I mean, how how much more telling can you get than that? Many of them refused to swear on the Bible. The only one I believe that did it, because he, I know he was an atheist, was um, Edgar Mitchell. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, even Alan Beam, he, he did eventually do it. But uh, then he when was told that he had to swear um you know, with treason. And he said, treason, no, what, you know, I'm not going to swear against treason. He says, no, well, treason means that you've, you know, gone against your, your country. And he, he wouldn't swear on the Bible, um, with the, with the treason clause in it, um, which is, it's just funny to me. I, I'll definitely swear on the Bible. And if I had walked on the moon and somebody said, Jaron, swear on the Bible, you walked on the moon. I, I couldn't grab the Bible fast enough. And if then somebody said, well, we'll give you $5,000 to a charity of your choice. Uh, I'd swear on the, on the Bible. I walked on the moon. It's simple. But, uh, with Neil Armstrong, you know, he, went, he became a recluse. He went uh, basically in hiding. He only came out for these uh, you know, 10-year anniversaries, or uh, if he was still alive, I'm sure he'd come out for this 50-year anniversary. Uh, but he would never do a one-on-one -on -one interview with any of the media, and that makes no sense to me. And then when you look at Buzz Aldrin, who got back and basically became an alcoholic and uh, has got through his life through selling items that he says he found, he took with him to the moon. So it's every other year he comes out with a new auction item where I carried this quarter on the, to the moon. I carried yeah. this silver dollar to the moon, whatever it is he comes out with and it sells for some 30, 40, $50,000. Um, it's a very easy way to make a living. I used to be a huge fan of Neil Armstrong when I was a little kid. And I always said, I want to be an astronaut just like him. And I remember 1974, I was standing in front of the ports in San Juan, Puerto Rico, waiting for his cruise ship to arrive and there were a lot of people with posters, welcome, Neil Armstrong, Puerto Rico welcomes you, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? He never came out of the cruise ship. And I thought, this is the first indicator to me, like, why wouldn't he come out and just be greeted by the people who are thankful for his accomplishment? Wow. Interesting story. Yeah. No, very surprising. I mean, I can't imagine. I've heard a lot of people tell me, oh, it's because he was afraid of the fame. He didn't like the fame. Um to me, I think that goes with the territory. If you're going to be the first human being to ever leave uh, this so-called rock and, and go to a, a rock in, in the sky, you know, a celestial uh, body, 
and be the first one to land there, you wouldn't know fully what was going to happen. And uh, there's so many stories about those guys that just take me, you know, in a different direction. It's just like when you know Buzz Aldrin, uh, supposedly his mom committed suicide, yeah. uh, right right before he went to the moon, and he still went, and and that's crazy. And when you look at that, and then you find out that he told the doctor to lie about uh, her death, uh, so the doctor. And this is all in his book. I'm not making this up. This is in uh, the book Magnificent Desolation, I believe, where he po- you know points out that, yeah, he had to tell the doctor to say something different because he didn't want people to know that his mom committed suicide. So basically the doctor said, oh, it was a heart attack or whatever. And then he went to the moon. But the real reason that she uh, didn't want him to go was because she was afraid of the publicity. That's what he says. But again, could it be that uh, she knew something about the fact mm. that he was going to have to fake it? We don't know. Interesting. And one last thing before we take a break, even just a few years ago, a NASA engineer claims the Van Allen belt is an area of dangerous radiation. Radiation like this can harm the guidance systems, onboard computers, or other electronics, or on Orion, which is the ship they're working on. Naturally, we have to pass through this dangerous zone twice, once up and once back. But Orion has protection. Shielding will be put to, to the test. My question to NASA would be, why wouldn't they just use the same quote-unquote shielding protection that must have worked back in 1969 with all those astronauts? Right. It doesn't make any sense. It's the same thing as Trump just coming out recently and saying he's in a, you know, give $600 million for them to develop a new lunar lander. Yeah. But it's like you already have a lunar lander that worked perfectly. Look what it did. It was able to go there six times with no problems. It was even able to carry a moon buggy with it. Uh, why? And then they say, you know, I think it's uh, astronaut Don Pettit who said, I'd go back to the moon, but uh, we had that technology, but we destroyed it. It's gone now. And uh, it's a painful process to bring it back. That's ridiculous. That's like saying that we used to have the technology to build a, a Nintendo Game Boy, but we lost it and it's too expensive to bring it back. It's like, yeah. what are you talking about? The that Atari is- 2600 or the Commodore 64. Right. <laughs> now, what's your yeah, take exactly. on the Space Force? Ah, I think it's all a lot of the things that we hear from these presidents and stuff, and we can get into that in the second half. But a lot of the stuff that we hear is is pure propaganda. And in this one, uh, I believe that probably the amount of people signing up for the military has been dropping. And so what better way to get more college students and high school students interested in becoming part of the military than to say they're going to start a new Space Force? It just gets more signups into the military. And just like you wanted to be an astronaut, if you heard there was going to be a Space Force at that age, uh, you may have signed up for the military where you would have, wouldn't have otherwise. And what they'll do is just continue to kind of push that out there. People will become part of the military and they'll just slowly get worked into other departments and say, oh, well, the Space Force is full and we're doing this with this. And, and you'll end up in the Air Force. You'll end up in the Army. You'll end up in the Marines. And it's just a way to kind of get more signups uh, for the military. Might a carrot. A carrot in front of the horse. Okay. All right. Well, folks, we have to take a one and only break, and when we come back, we have a lot more, a lot more, and I know that you have discussed a lot of things that you have found out about the moon that we haven't discussed before. This is the anniversary this year, and I know to a lot of people, we sound as some unpatriotic fools by even doubting such an important event, the most important event in human history, technology-wise, for humanity, was that time in 19... July 20, what is it? 16, 20, 20th, 1969. When we come back, we're going to dissect more. Jaren, how can people learn more about your work? Yeah, you can find me on YouTube. Very easy. It's just Jaronism, J-E-R-A-N-I-S-M. I also have a website, jaronism.com, and you can find all the links from there. But uh, yeah, appreciate you guys tuning in and checking out my website and checking out the YouTube channel. And from there, you can find my 
uh, Monday night radio show, which is on Truth Frequency Radio at tfrlive.com. That's Monday nights from 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific. Um, but I'm easy to find. Just search Jaronism. You'll find plenty. Believe nothing, question everything. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. See you in the member section. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.